This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues using the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Mr. George Godding, a Baha'i from Rochester, Vermont who through a difficult childhood and having to leave home at a young age, odds that make most people criminals, produced a man who would contribute to his community and to his country. I started the interview by asking George where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I had a tough childhood. I very, my, uh, to begin with, I was cesarean. Okay. And I was born 10 o'clock at night and my mother lived till about midnight. And my father was having a tough time. He ended up going bankrupt, and he had three gas stations and a tire shop and two houses. He lost everything, and his wife. Oh, wow. And he married his secretary. So let's just go back just real quick here. So your mother died at bearing you. Yeah. And like a couple of hours after you were born, she passed away. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. And, uh, well, like I say, he lost everything in the Depression. But he he married my stepmother, uh, who was his secretary. Okay. And uh, she she's partly responsible for his failure because she got him to extend himself too far. And uh, plus, he was uh, letting people have gasoline on the cuff, and they never paid him because the Depression came along. So, so yeah. you describe him as a generous man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he ended up later on on the railroad. Okay. Gates down for the crossings, and he eventually became a station agent. And my older brother did the same thing. My older brother is now 95, and we're very much alike. I go down to visit him in Florida, and he, he's in a very tiny church, about 150 members. And half of them are speak Spanish. Really? Yes. I, why? I, what, kind of what, interesting. Yeah. What, what kind of? That happened in the last five years. Yeah. And, and some people left because of that. But anyway, I find that very fascinating. Yeah, me too. But they think we're twins because we look alike, even though he's twenty years older. <laughs> well, almost. Mm-hmm. No, he's actually sixteen and a half years older. Yeah. So. Uh, and I had uh, three, there's three girls and three boys in the family, all of them older than me, much older. And I was born in Woburn, Massachusetts. Okay. And by the time I became cognizant of where I was, we were living in Arlington, Massachusetts, which isn't too far. It's about 10 miles from Harvard Square. And then when I was 13, I went on the farm in Stowe, Massachusetts, and lived with an aunt and uncle that had no children. 
My aunt was my father's sister, younger sister. She was the youngest, too. And uh, she wanted a, a young companion for her husband. And that was her main interest. And she sort of, she was sort of the boss. <laughs> I, I'm used to the women being the boss in the family, my, like my stepmother. Uh-huh. But uh, anyway, my stepmother was pretty abusive, so I was pretty pretty glad to leave. Matter of fact, I did exercises from the time I was nine until I was thirteen to get strong enough. Even though I was little, I was a shrimpy in my class. So anyway, incentive was to get strong enough to leave, find work. I couldn't imagine getting a job because I was so small. Mm. Nobody could believe I could do a day's work. In fact, my aunt and uncle didn't for. For a while, but they had a hired man. See, this is during World War II, where there was no hired help around. They were all in the service, and my father wouldn't sign for me to go in. I was seventeen, but he wouldn't sign for me to go in. So, uh, I went to college for one semester. So, what was it like on the farm? Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble because they were much older, and uh, we had a forest fire on the farm. And my aunt wouldn't let me fight it. I went in the house, called up the fire department, but I had to stay in the house. That was crushing Mm because I was trying to be a man, you know. So uh, that finished me with the farm, and that's why I went to college, really. I didn't tell people. I did well in school. I was salutatorian in my high school class. Matter of fact, there were seven of us in my high school class, I was the only boy. All the other guys were in the Navy. Mm. So uh, I took basic training in in uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama. And then I got a job at Camp Kimmel, New Jersey, processing guys coming back from Europe. And in the meantime, I enlisted in the Army. I was drafted. So I enlisted for 18 months, but I had to sign for five years in the reserve. So I get out in 18 months. And then Harry Truman called me back when the Korean War broke out. And I ended up going to Korea. So I was in the 19th Infantry in Korea. How old were you when you went to the Korean War? I was about 23, I think. 1950, yeah. 50, 51. So I saw a lot of action. And I sat out as a heavy weapons crewman. Had a very interesting experience. They decided they wanted to try having a forward observer for the uh, machine guns. I, I was in a heavy weapons outfit, and we were he- uh, 30 caliber water-cooled machine guns. And so uh, they put me together with a radio man and sent us out to go with the infantry, with the rifle company. And give them directions on when to cease fire so that we could rush the hill before the Chinese could get back. Mm. And a machine gun took the top of a tree off. It fell on me. Mm. It was a small, like a Christmas tree, you know, like a 12-foot Christmas tree. And I tried to get the radio man to follow me down in the back side of the hill, but he kind of panicked, and he ran right across, just ran faster, and he ran across in front of me, and he got hit. Well, I thought I saw where it was coming from. And I was an expert, especially at 500 yards. And I took a shot, and I think 
I hit somebody up there because I no more machine gun fire. So that night I pulled guard duty at 2 a.m. and I started to meditate about it. Mm. And uh, I just, I don't really know how to pray. So I said, uh, well, probably if I do the best I can, that's good enough. And so I prayed that I would understand. Well, the next morning they come up online and they said, anybody here have any college background? I was the only one. Everybody came from Alabama, Mississippi, most of them pretty uneducated. And uh, anybody here type? Yeah, I can do 35 words a minute. So they made me company clerk. Well, so I got offline. I not only got offline, but I've never had a loaded weapon in my hand since for deer hunting or anything. But I didn't notice that my prayer was answered for about two weeks. Then it occurred to me, maybe that was an answer to prayer. Mm. Well, we had another fellow in my outfit who ended up being an insurance man, and he was uh, not particularly rugged physically. It made more of an intellectual. And he had a problem worrying about everything, you know. So I says, let's try saying a prayer for you. Down if they didn't make him mailman. And he get offline. So I figure I saved his life because those kind of guys would get killed in a couple of days, you know. Mm-hmm. They saw they were their own worst enemies. Wow. And then I decided, let's do it up brown and pray about the whole thing. And that's when we had the ceasefire. Now, the war isn't over yet. And they probably killed 12 of 24 a year over there, snipers and whatnot. Uh, not not quite as bad as Iraq, but right. that sort of thing. Right. But at any rate, so I, I find that very interesting. Mm. I even pr- I prayed heavily about the Iraqi war and Vietnam. I didn't think about Vietnam soon enough, really. But I find it interesting that, that they ended one way or another. Oh, I forgot to mention that I flunked out of college. Uh, what happened was I, I came back from Korea, and I didn't go home. I, the, the day after I got back, I was in class oh, wow. back at at uh, UMass mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't realize that uh, I had gone to school for say 12 years so I was in shape for study but that one year off where I was doing something altogether different got me out of shape scholastically and I, I took the full load because I was anxious to get the show on the road plus I only had a certain amount of GI Bill that I could use so I flunked out mm. but uh, at any rate uh, I ended up uh, moving around on jobs I started out at Stone and Webster in Boston and then I went to uh, Associated Engineers in uh, Agawam, Mass and they hired me out to places like uh, Hamilton Standard and Pratt & Whitney and the aircraft companies then I worked for Van Norman in Springfield for about five years, and I worked. Eventually, we decided to leave the city. And when you say the city, 
Were you Springfield, Mass. Springfield, Mass. Yeah. We lived in Springfield. We lived in her parents' home for about five years. Mary's parents? Yeah. Okay, this is your wife. Mary. Yeah, Mary. And so I went out to Athol and worked for a guy who I had worked with at Van Norman. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he never lied to me, but he was a very deceptive person. So I decided to resign. And so two weeks after I resigned, uh, after I gave my notice, I didn't show up for work. Mm. And he called up Mary. Where's George? He meant it when he said he was quitting. <laughs> he didn't believe it. No, he didn't believe I was really yeah. going to quit. Yeah. How'd you How'd you meet Mary? In college. Matter of fact, the uh, the dean of women strongly recommend the girls stay away from the Devons men. By Devons, she meant the veterans that came back to the U, to the university through Fort Devons. They didn't have room at the main campus, so we went to Fort Devons. <laughs> she couldn't have done us a better favor. <laughs> we had more more days you could shake a stick at. <laughs> at any rate. Yeah. Um, and when did you get married? Uh, right after she graduated. And I was working for Stone and Webster. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, I wasn't. I was actually working uh, in Springfield, Mass. Mm. I went to work in uh, New Hampshire for Kingsbury. I was living in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and uh, and one night I was listening to my favorite football team, which happened to be the New York Giants at that time, and they were playing Cleveland. Now, they had played Cleveland before and won, and they ended up in a tie, so they played them for the conference championship. Then they ended up playing them in the finals, which is before Super Bowl, but same sort of thing. Well, I'm sitting down all ready to take in this final game. And the Giants had to win that one, too, to win it all. And I noticed in the paper, the Unitarian Church was featuring the president, the New Hampshire president of the NAACP, and he was going to discuss the difficulty he had getting haircuts in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I said to myself, i got to see this. What attracted you to that particular well, event? Well, my stepmother, when I was young, she'd talk about the equality of men and women. She'd talk about a universal language. She'd talk about uh, uh, backbiting. And she was into the racial equality, real heavy. She still didn't like Jews but she, or Catholics. And, and she was always for the underdog mm-hmm. that way. You, yeah, so before you saw this article in the paper about the NAACP speaker, mm-hmm. did you have inclinations after you left home about yeah. about race unity and yeah. these issues? Uh, not only that, uh, it dawned on me that it's very possible that Christ could have returned and nobody knew it. Now, what made you think that? Well, uh, I was brought up uh, a Baptist, mm-hmm. and they got into that a lot mm-hmm. about to make sure you recognize Christ when he comes. Mm-hmm. You don't want to miss it. And they really impressed that on me. And I was young. I was going to church when I was seven. Matter of fact, I had perfect attendance in Sunday school. 
everything. We went to Bible uh, um, prayer meeting on Wednesdays, and we went to Junior Endeavor on Sunday nights. I went to Sunday school class, and then I went to church. So I had plenty of church. As a matter of fact, when they went around to all us kids to see if we wanted to get baptized, uh, I really didn't quite get it. But I didn't want anybody to think that I didn't love Jesus. So I just couldn't bear to not. I didn't quite see the connection that the church had with Jesus. They talked like they knew him personally, you know. You know how fundamentalists can do that. The ministers. And and uh, so I got to asking questions, and, and I got the minister's wife really mad at me hmm. because I asked questions. So I would always been like that. Mm-hmm. Well, one time when I was in, I think I was in Springfield, Mass. I might have been in Athol. I decided to play the entire Messiah. I have a hard time talking about it. You know, uh, certain things like the government shall be upon his shoulder and all that, and his name shall be called Wonderful. But at any rate, because of the racial thing, I felt that I should go to that meeting. And I said to myself, if I miss my game, God will fix it all right. <laughs> you have to take care of me. Mag, I'm sorry to probe, but why is it so moving for you to to hear the Messiah? Well, I'm pretty easily moved by music. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, uh, uh, that characteristic I've always been kind of ashamed of because I don't think it's very masculine. And I never could under... I never could understand why uh, other people at the movies weren't affected. Because mm, in those days, every movie had a happy ending. So, I'm I'm touched by by uh, hopeful things. That's the key: hope. Mm. Faith, hope, and charity in the the best one is charity, but for me, <laughs> yeah. hope is pretty big. Mm. But I, see, I was kind of losing hope as a kid because of abuse. Mm-hmm. And they came to the house to check up on my stepmother, and I lied through my teeth, you know. Mm. But I thought I was telling the truth. She had me convinced that. You know, was couldn't a- leave the house without kissing her goodbye. If you, if you didn't kiss her goodbye, she'd give you hell, you know. But I never thought it meant a, meant a thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, so uh, I, I met this uh, woman at, uh, at the meeting, mm-hmm. and uh, her name was Polly Marlowe. She came from Peterborough, New Hampshire. And her mother, Nancy... Marlowe, uh, Nancy Bowditch, excuse me, uh, she was a Peterborough Baha'i, and she asked her daughter to come up 
from Florida to help her. Well, uh, she she started asking them questions, and they were terrific questions. And uh, she asked his wife questions. Now I'm a little confused. Who's asking who questions here? Polly Miles asked the speaker, okay. the, black, the president of the NAACP. These questions. These great questions. And she uh, got his wife into the discussion. And his wife was very touched by it. Because uh, she never was asked how she felt about anything. All the time she was in New Hampshire, maybe before too. I don't know. So uh, I said, I got to meet this woman. Mm. But she's too good looking. I can't just go right up to her. <laughs> so she comes over to me. She says, Hi, I'm Paulie Mala. What's your name? Mm. And she invited me to a fireside. And now what's a fireside? Uh, it's a Baha'i gathering where people that have an interest in the faith or in religion are invited to come and they usually have a speaker and uh, well I was amazed there's five different races there the speaker was Jewish a young guy he's only about 18 and uh, he was telling about his trip to Haifa on pilgrimage Haifa Israel yeah and I thought this is Dullsville, you know. I wasn't at least been interested in that, but I was interested in the people. And there's a Native American there, and there was a black, and there was a Persian, uh, and I was astonished. And she was the greatest hostess, but I never got a chance to talk to her because she was being a good hostess to everybody. She spoke to me all right, you know. She was pleasant, but I couldn't ask her any questions. I had a ton of questions to ask her. Oh, by the way, at the church meeting, uh, I got interested in in prejudice towards women. Mm. And, of course, that rang bells with her when I showed that interest as well as the prejudice towards the black. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was interested in that, too. So when I went home, I went. I prayed that she'd invite me to another meeting. And sure enough, she did. <laughs> so the, uh, I became a... It took me uh, almost five weeks to to get it, but she, she showed me how. <laughs> she says, uh, you got to... I'll give you this book by Esselmont, which explains what the page all about. Well, and I, the new era. And I'll give you the hidden words, and the essence is right in there. So the Hidden Words is a book by Baha'u'llah. That's right. And it's in Persian and in Arabic. And right. the, so there's I, two versions of the Hidden Words, both translated. One's translated from the Arabic, and then the other one's translated from the Persian. Yeah, but they're actually different. It's a different yeah, they're yeah. different. They're not books. the same. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. two different. Right. And they're, they have a different flavor, too. Mm. I find the one in Persian very heartwarming. Mm. And the one in Arabic is kind of serious. But anyway, then I read The Seven Valleys. and uh, That's also by Baha'u'llah. Yeah. And that was interesting because uh, it gave a stories like a real picture, and you can visualize. And uh, like one of, one of the men that was fleeing from his enemy ends up, having to go over a wall and he ends up in the garden and there's his beloved and now he wants to go back and kiss the feet of his pursuers 
to thank him. <laughs> and I felt the same way. Mm. Well, I was telling you about David Spore. I worked with him, and I helped him as a draftsman. Uh, he had trouble because his, his lettering wasn't really too good. Mm. But I showed him tricks of how to improve your lettering. And one is to, to write as small as you possibly can and see if you can get the whole alphabet in one inch. Oh, my. And then another way is to make them three inches high and go back and forth, and your regular lettering will improve. Oh. It's a matter of developing control. Mm-hmm. It's like in running. Uh, you do wind sprints, and then you do distance, and then you go up and down stairs mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. Mm. And yeah. it's sort of like balance. It's the key. Mm. I found it athletic. Matter of fact, I was a runner, and one of the reasons I was a runner, uh, I wanted to find out on a spiritual plane what's going on in the spiritual plane. And uh, the physical plane is visible. And being a draftsman, the whole key to drafting is to make an idea visible. Mm. And you get it on paper and it becomes visible. Mm-hmm. Then it gets into steel. But before it gets into steel, you correct all the mistakes. And life is like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I was a draftsman in my lifetime. So I, I consider that was a good calling. I was what they call a job shopper. The engineering placement companies that would hire us, like the Kelly girls, same idea. Mm-hmm. And they'd place us and Pratt and & Whitney and Sikorsky Helicopter and Hamilton Standard and Martin Marietta and all these different places. Mm. Ingersoll Rand and Raytheon. I've been all over the East Coast, all the way down to Richmond, Virginia. Mm. That was interesting down there. I was having difficulty in my home community of Rochester. I, uh, I sort of lost my confidence. Mm. So I prayed about it, and I, I prayed the 500 removers of difficulties, and to be sure of it, I decided to do it a thousand times. So I did. I said a thousand times. Now the remover of difficulties is a Baha'i prayer. Why don't you? Uh, yeah, I can say it for you. Yeah, it's very short. Is there any remover of difficulties save God? Say, praise be God. He is God. All are his servants, and all abide by his bidding. Yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, the, remo- the difficulty was removed. They moved me down to Richmond, Virginia. They took me right out of Rochester. So. And it was interesting. That happened without jeopardizing the assembly. Most, most of the time in Rochester, we've had nine people. For years, we had just mm-hmm. nine people. So we always had just barely having a quorum or enough to make an assembly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to explain to our audience, <coughs> what you're talking about is that in every community, when there's nine or more Baha'is, right. we have a governing council called a local spiritual assembly. Mm-hmm. And if there's less than nine, then one isn't formed. It's not until you have nine that you can either form a local governing yeah. council. Of local and of course, if you have more than nine, you, you, can you have, have, an have, have an election. Yeah. Okay. Lately, we've had about 11 or 13, something. Mm-hmm. So we have an election. We call an assembly in jeopardy when they go below nine. Mm-hmm. So I was down in Richmond for about a year and a half, and I was able to help them down there. Uh, 
there were quite a number of new Baha'is. It was during the Kent State riots, and there was a lot of activity down south all at once. Mm. We found towns with 400 Baha'is and no assembly because they never had the election. Well, I went, they, they asked me to come to uh, Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, they wanted me to move into town. Uh, my company had put me in Colonial Heights because there was no blacks in Colonial Heights. They thought I'd like it better there. I, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't stay long. I did. What year is this? Are you talking this about? is back in 74. Mm-hmm. When I worked down in Connecticut for a while, I stayed in uh, New Britain, Connecticut, the same town as my, my sister-in-law, who was a Baha'i. And then later on, I was there about three years. Uh, later on, I moved to Ellington, mm. so I went back to Rochester eventually. Mm. Now you mentioned that your sister is a Baha'i. Sister-in-law. Sister-in-law. Yeah. Now, was did her becoming a Baha'i happen independently of you? No, no. Actually, uh, uh, her son, I believe, preceded her. I'm not sure. I think he did. He was he was at uh, MIT, and we had a lot of activity going on in the colleges. Matter of fact, uh, uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Maybe I should tell another story first. Sure, go ahead. Uh, we were living in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I was becoming disenamored with the company I was working for in industry and I really kind of wanted to get out of industry because I saw a lot of corruption in industry and I met a fellow who established what they call a friendly farm in Dublin, New Hampshire Dublin's an interesting place that's another story (laughs) anyway, he he told me how he was a broker and he got disillusioned and prayed about it, he ended up setting up this friendly farm which is very successful so we prayed together and I decided to try farming. We farmed in Putney, Vermont. And one of our Baha'i friends had a brother who went to Wyndham College, which is defunct today, but anyway. Mm. And so his name was Dalton Garris, a Mabel Garris's son. Mabel Garris, pretty famous writer. If people go to my website, abahaiperspective.com, they will see an interview of Mabel Garris there. Mabel Garris. That, well, she was not a Baha'i at that time. Mm-hmm. And Dalton wasn't either. His brother went to Texas and pulled him out of Texas because he was in an unfortunate situation. I don't know whether it was alcohol or drugs or whatever. But anyway, worried about him. And he took him up to Wilmette. And he met the Baha'is there and he fell for the faith. And they liked his attitude, and they said, well, you're already a Baha'i, you know. You believe all this. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he goes to college at Wyndham College, and I look him up, and we start having firesides down there at Wyndham College, and they're hugely successful. Eventually, I lost my job there, and I ended up in Rochester. I wanted to help the Crookshanks. They were in, which is in the very center of the state, exact center Mm. and they were running a children's uh, camp to promote 
not only racial harmony, but international harmony. And they would invite children from the Navajo reservations and children from Eskimo families and children from Africa and Japan and all over. What's the name of the camp? High Rise. Is it still in operation? No. Well, Don died a couple of years ago, but they quit before that. Mm-hmm. But the, it, that was going for about 30 years. So I'm back in Rochester. Oh, when I lost my job in Richmond, Virginia, and I think I lost it because of the racial issue, it took me about six months to make friends with the Blueprint girls who were black downstairs. And I, they would warn me, not that, that I was in trouble with them, but that I would be in trouble with, with what they might do to me. That was the kind of warning they gave me, and I, of course I ignored it. So I lost that job. When I read the hidden words, uh, I was struck uh, because I had learned uh, the 23rd Psalm and things like that in the Bible, mm-hmm. other Psalms too, very thoroughly. And it's the same author, I say to myself when I read it. So I approached my investigation of the faith believing that it probably really is true. Mm-hmm. As incredible as it seems that Christ could have returned and nobody knew it. None of the ministers told us a thing. None of the world leaders. Mm. The only one who paid any attention at all was Queen Victoria. She says, if this is true, it'll last. If it's not, it doesn't matter. Mm. I think I, uh, initially, I, I looked up different prophecies, for example, like Baha'u'llah's travels. It fulfilled all the prophecies about what the travels would be like. And he did it as a prisoner. Mm. Didn't have anything to say about where he was going to travel. And I found 64 prophecies fulfilled. Mm. And the one that struck me the most was, was a Zoroastrian prophecy that said, In that day, women shall be considered men's equal. Mm. So I, I, I spent about 20 years uh, studying this, and I've made up a chart. I meant to bring one. Mm-hmm. And my chart shows all the manifestations from God, and there's nine of them that uh, establish world religions, such as Krishna, Zoroaster, Buddha, Muhammad, Christ, the Bab, Baha'u'llah. And uh, they all had the golden rule, different words. And another interesting thing I found out was the Hopis have verses in their scripture that have the entire thought of the 23rd Psalm expressed differently but it means exactly the same. Didn't leave out anything. And I met a Baha'i called Ruth Moffat. She made a chart, and she showed how the manifestations from God are the source of knowledge of science, arts, everything, even mathematics. Mm. And Zoroaster was famous for mathematics. And then uh, the whole Industrial Revolution started about the middle of the 19th century, 1850, I was impressed by that, too, because of, uh, well, my son-in-law is a dentist, and uh, they invented ether, which could, and Novocaine, things like that, to remove pain. Mm. So it's the end of pain, really. Mm. So they know how to end pain. Interesting. Morphine pumps. We had a friend who, was a, who became a Baha'i, and she had a morphine pump, and we helped her through her last days. 
So we've had a lot of very interesting experiences. So I, I really don't know where I'd be without the faith. I think physically I wouldn't even be alive because being a runner, they misdiagnosed my heart disease. So it took them three years to find out I had serious heart disease. So I, I found it out by other methods. What were those methods? Well, it's just that I paid attention to different kinds of experts, like naturopaths mm -hmm. and homeopaths. Uh, in the meantime, I not only got a second opinion, I got nine opinions. And I finally ended up finding out it was heart, heart disease. Because uh, my doctors in, in the Rochester area got a new stress testing machine, and I just barely flunked it. It's a three-minute test. I lasted two minutes and 58 seconds, and the roof fell in, and, and, you know, they got readings on my EKG chart, and I was experiencing severe pain and all kinds of things. So they rushed me by ambulance to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital, and I had triple bypass. How long ago was that? About eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Maybe nine years. And now I can run again. I used to run with those doctors. We ran the Montreal Marathon when I was 59. So, George, can you imagine what your life would have been like if you had not become a Baha'i? Like I say, I, I probably wouldn't be alive because I think the prayers helped steer me in the right direction, even though the experts were way off on my diagnosis. They seemed to get everything wrong. I had gout. They didn't diagnose that properly. Mm. I had kidney stones. They didn't catch that right away. I had a hernia for years and years finally got that straightened out. Mm -hmm. Oh, prostate. I had prostate problems, too. But I have a high tolerance of pain, so I don't mm -hmm. run to the doctor for much of anything. How about what would, where do you, what direction do you think your life would have taken if you had not found the Baha'i? Well, for one thing, just a month before I became a Baha'i, I gave up drinking. So you were already going in that direction? Yeah. It seemed like I would have stumbled on Well, I'm puzzled why I didn't stumble on it earlier. Mm. Because when we lived in Springfield, Mass., I went to the library and looked up in the library, and I'm very poor at that. My wife is a librarian. And I looked up the return of Christ, and, and I didn't find anything. I actually was searching for the return that far back. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've always had difficulty in that area. As a matter of fact, that's what I flunked in college was English languages. I did great in mathematics. I had a ton of uh, calculus and all that. Did mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And chemistry and physics. Even chemical I majored in chemical engineering. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I had trouble in college with the idea of what I call credentials. And in some ways, I'm glad I never got any credentials. Because it's a separation that I consider similar to the caste system where if you don't have a P.E. behind your name, your signature doesn't mean beans. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I worked for Pratt & Whitney, the guys down in the shop, if they saw George Gotting on the drawing, they knew it was right, even if it didn't make sense. I, I, I did some things on my drawings that didn't make any sense, but there was a purpose. We had one example where I called for a, an end mill cut in, in a housing. Well... 80% of the time, that cutter wouldn't touch a thing. But if there was a core shift in the casting, it might make a radius interfere with a gyro. 
And so you have to run the cutter in there to clear that material out and make sure it's not there, you know. Mm -hmm. So the drawing called for this cut. And they found out right away because they said, oh, heck, doesn't cut anything. The heck with that operation. We'll skip it. We'll save some time. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it got down the assembly line and the rotors wouldn't rotate. (laughs) And they call me down and they say, George, it's all screwed up. I said, I know exactly what you did. You didn't do a thing. It's what you didn't do. <laughs> you didn't put that cutter in there, did you? Yeah. How'd you know? <laughs> he thought I was a genius. <laughs> well, they 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 considered me an engineer, mm. and so whenever they had an engineering problem, they they'd call for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And eventually, my drafting board got to be off limits because so many people coming up from the shop want me to fix stuff. They knew what they knew it was wrong, but they didn't know why. They didn't know what was wrong. But they knew it was wrong, and these guys are sharp. They've been doing it for twenty years. Mm. And when I was designing equipment, I'd go down and consult them and say, "Now, how would you like to have me set up this target?" And they'd tell me, mm. "Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I can do that, and save a lot of unfortunate mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you're gonna target something, make it exactly an inch away." Not an inch and three sixteenths. If you make an inch and three sixteenths, they might read read it an inch and three eighths, and it'll be wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But an inch, pretty hard to mistake that. So I wouldn't I, I'd avoid traps for them. Mm-hmm. But but I knew them, you know. I could communicate with them, and to me, that's part of part of the the lesson of consultation in in the Baha'i faith. Real good communication, where you respect somebody, whether or not he's got a college degree or what, mm. PhD, and it works the other way too. Just because he's a PhD doesn't mean he's out of touch with reality, <laughs> even if he, <laughs> even if he is. <laughs> All of us are out of touch sometimes. <laughs> Very true. I I have a difficult time. In some ways, I feel like I've always been a Baha'i. Mm. Ever since I was seven years old, questioning, I knew there was something wrong with that, that, that I should be able to question. That's, that's how I checked out Baha'u'llah. I said, Jesus would want me to pick up on this. He told his disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear it now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of Truth, has come, he will guide you to all the truth. This recognition is very interesting. That's one of my favorite words now, recognition. The lack of recognition causes all kinds of problems. Mm. Like if nobody recognizes the true government of Iraq, how are you going to have a, how are you going to build a de- democratic country? They recognize the Americans because they got the firepower. But when that's gone, then what? Mm. And they only recognize it while you got the gun <laughs> at their head, you know. So that that doesn't cut it. And, of course, that's what uh, most authority is after, is image. Got nothing to do with reality. They want to create an image so that people will practically worship. In North Korea, they worship their leader. And they worship uh, Saddam Hussein, some of them. That must be confusing when the leadership is like that. I should sit down and pray for pray for the people of Iraq more because actually they're the ones m- many more 
Iraqis are getting killed and American soldiers. We've lost 2,300. They've probably lost 100,000. Mm. Oh, uh, when I went to Korea, uh, I could have uh, got a deferment because of college, but I felt like the United Nations was the way to go in warfare and that it shouldn't be the United States or England or any particular country taking over and doing it. And I was surprised. I recently got my my medal from Korea. Uh, it was against American law to accept uh, a medal from a foreign country. But on the 50th anniversary of the Korean War, they relinquished that, and I got my medal from the country of Korea. And they gave me a chat of all the countries that were involved in that war. 22 countries. Really? But I was really disappointed because I thought this was going to put legs under the UN. I don't know whether what the problem is, whether it's corruption or whether it's lack of American support or what it is. In fact, uh, I heard about the League of Nations before I was a Baha'i when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I heard... Uh, my my stepmother, she thought that Woodrow Wilson died because a heart, he was heartbroken that the United States didn't pick up on the League of Nations. Mm. And his daughter was a Baha'i, I understand. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I find life fascinating. I, mm. I'm almost 80 years old, and I'm looking forward to the future because on uh, this job I have now, I'm my wife and I are house managers senior citizens, and we have been for uh, almost 15 years. whole new career in engineering. I, I didn't see much of people I was working on specific projects. Mm. Some of them were big. A couple of them were $20 million projects. Mm. But it's, life is full of tests, and like when you're in college, you don't like tests, but but where would you be without them? You, know, you wouldn't know that you, what you, know. What you know or what you don't know. Yeah. I used to learn a lot in tests. I I used to like to take tests. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to find out what I didn't know, for one thing, you know. Mm-hmm. When I was on the farm, I used to we used to have to haul water for the chickens, and we had a big wooden barrel, and we had a little uh, automobile that was cut down like a tractor, and I'd go down and get the water, and pail it in, you know. But when the barrel was empty, I'd sing into it. <laughs> it was the most therapeutic thing. I think that solved a lot of my difficulties really? uh, when I was young. Sort of like chanting or something. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, it, it worked great. That's nice. Do you have any stories about your kids? My son, he made a deal with me. He says, I'm not going to become a Baha'i until you stop smoking. I didn't smoke all that much. And when I was in Virginia, I was getting them for 35 cents a pack. Then I come up onto the New York Thruway, and there were 65 cents a pack in the machines. The heck with that. So I quit. My daughter, Becky, had a, a black girl from her, for a roommate who was a Baha'i. This is in college? Yeah, at Mount Holyoke. And uh, she uh, was a very beautiful girl. And it was sort of like a role reversal, class-wise, because she was in what you might call the upper class. Well, my two girls were valedictorians in Rochester, and Becky went to law school, 
passed the Massachusetts bar, which is probably the hardest in the country. Really? Took took one of the Kennedys five tests to pass. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And I kid her because Calvin Coolidge came from Vermont, and that's what he did. First, he went to law school in Springfield, Mass., where Becky went. Then he got a job for a law firm in Northampton, Mass. That's what Becky's done. Then he became governor of Massachusetts, which is Becky's next step. <laughs> then he became president of the United States. So I, I figure Becky's going to be our first woman president. <laughs> Actually, that's probably not possible. It's possible, but not probable, because the highs can't camp- campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, you know how our elections work. Yeah, mm. I was legitimately elected. Mm-hmm. So even though, even though uh, uh, I'm going to have to borrow some money to get to Wilmette, the convention, mm-hmm. I was elected. I'm out of work. I haven't got a dime. That's what I did. I borrowed twenty-five bucks, and and I got through the whole convention on twenty-five bucks. Oh my gosh! I got back. I got a ride back to Burlington, and I had two dollars left. And one of the Baha'is says, "I'll take you to Rochester for two bucks." <laughs> so I made it home. <laughs> and when was this? Oh, that was. I think that was 1970. Mm. When I was there. So you were the state representative for the Baha'is yeah. at their national convention. Yeah. As you know, the local assembly is nine mm-hmm. elected. The national assembly is nine. They're elected by the delegates mm-hmm. once a year. Mm-hmm. And then the international house of justice is also nine, mm-hmm. at least it is now. Mm-hmm. And they're elected by the members of the National Assemblies from all over the world. And that must be quite an undertaking to do that. Mm-hmm. They, they do it every five years. Mm-hmm. And none of us have any more authority than anybody else, mm-hmm. personally. But the bodies, that's where the authority is. Mm-hmm. And I consider that a terrific protection. Mm-hmm. So you go, no ego problems. If you have an ego problem, doesn't matter goes right by the board. <laughs> I, I met a, uh, a cowboy out in Oklahoma. I went to a youth conference out in Oklahoma, which was great. And I run into some fundamentalist Christians, and I had some terrific raps with them. I just enjoyed them. I seem to have good luck with the fundamentalists since I come from the same background. In a way, I know where they're coming from. And it's so strange that they're so sincere, and yet it's so difficult to... But this, uh, I find every group has different difficulties. I was brought up a fundamentalist in the Baptist church, and when I went to the farm, they were Unitarians, which is the opposite end, practically. And I made friends with a Catholic. And all my sisters... I converted Catholics, except my stepsister. My stepsister still. She goes to the same church I was telling you about, my brother down in Florida, mm, that okay. little church. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm proud of both of them. They've stayed with that church, even though it's more than 50% Hispanic now in the last five years. And they've lost a lot of the fairly wealthy people because they're upset with that change. So this is your brother and your stepsister? Yeah. 
So they don't have any issues with, Not with diversity. Race. No. No. That's wonderful. So they've picked up on that too. That's great. And most of them think what I'm doing is great. Mm. In fact, I'm sort of a, a family figure in a way because I'm, I ran the Boston Marathon and I was first to go to college. I'm into health, healthy things mm-hmm. and all that, you know. So in a way, they're proud of me. And they do talk about the faith a little bit. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to take it seriously, which is the <laughs> way I was in college, you know. I'd go to church, but it wasn't serious business anymore because uh, there was no substance behind it that I could find anywhere. And I think I read something to the effect that uh, if God didn't exist, man would invent one. (laughs) I find that very interesting. A lot of people probably think man did invent God. You know... Uh, one thing that I love about mathematics is the expression infinity. There's a symbol for infinity. And no matter how you try to approach infinity mathematically, you can't come anywhere near it. And of course, that's the way it is with God. He is so infinite. Like, for instance, look how huge the earth is. It's really huge. And the sun is one of the smallest of all the suns. And this is in the visible universe, the universe that goes beyond our vision. Incredible. And another thing that that helps me uh, appreciate people more, even if they're difficult, is every one of us have had ancestors for for about 7 million years. They all survived. They all survived long enough to procreate. They all were able to keep their children alive until they could procreate. And this has been going on for seven million years. It's incredible. And at the park house where I work, we've had some difficult people because we have Alzheimer's. And what we do is if they become senile, we don't throw them out. If it gets to be where they need round-the-clock care for, say, a year, by that time, their family catches on and say they have to go to a nursing home or they, they need more care than we can give them here. Mm-hmm. We have home health care aides come in and get them to bed, get them up in the morning, get them a shower or whatever. So it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And what is your job there? Mary and I are house managers. Okay. What does that entail? That entails 24-7. Doing what? Every, anything. So you're, but, you're the first contact for these folks? Yeah. So we get calls in the middle of the night. We've had people call, and they died in the middle of the night. I've given mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Usually I'm the one that will get up. and Or they fall down, mm-hmm. fall out of bed, all kinds of things. Now, how many residents are there? Well, the most we have is 17. In the beginning, we had five. And we get up to 17. Now, right now, we're back down to about 12. Problem is, we had eight die last year. Mm. What's the name of the facility? It's called a park house. And it's located where? Rochester, Vermont. Rochester, Vermont. Yeah. Okay. I do all the maintenance. Mm. I I clear the snow. Mm -hmm. I cut the grass, and there's an acre and a quarter of grass to cut. And I empty the rubbish. 
and I do the recycling, and I set up for breakfast, dinner, and supper, and I run a dishwasher for breakfast, dinner, and supper. And we have meetings there a lot. I set up chairs. We have a, a, a trolley with about 35 bowling chairs. Mm-hmm. I bring out and put them out, mm-hmm. move the furniture. We have exercise classes. I set up for that. Then there's odds and ends of things. This morning, somebody says, there's a telephone going off in my bathroom, and I can't find it. I go in there, come to find out he's got a little alarm clock, and it's got a ring on it like a telephone. Nothing, they have two switches on the wall. The first switch is the fan. The second switch is the light. Well, they get mixed up, and they'll say, George, I can't get the light on. And there's a funny noise in the bathroom. I know exactly what what it is. Who covers for you when you're... We cover for you. We don't go anywhere together. So how long have you been in this? It'll be 15 years this November. We started just before Thanksgiving in 91. And they had quite a problem. Almost the entire staff quit in the first four months. The director quit. All the cooks quit except the head cook. The housekeeper quit. And so we applied for the manager job. So it'll be 15 years this year. Well, thank you, George. Well, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with George Godding, a Baha'i for many years from Rochester, Vermont. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Hello, I'm Warren Odeschulette host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio's sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. The Baha'is of the Springfield area would like people to know about the Unity Center in downtown Springfield, 434 Belmont Avenue. Highlighted events include homework help on Wednesday evenings, devotional gatherings on Thursday evenings, and classes about the Baha'i faith and other spiritual matters on Saturday mornings. It's open to all faiths, and the events are listed in the Republican newspaper under the Religious Directory section. For more information, you can call 413-783-2136 or visit the website www.bahaisofhamdencounty.org. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 
103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.